This episode of The Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. You're listening to Most Innovative Companies. I'm Josh Christensen. On today's episode, we have another featured panel from the Fast Company Innovation Festival this past fall in New York. This panel is called Second Life, How Technology and Social Norms Are Remaking Fashion. It features Maxine Beda, Executive Director of New Standard Institute, Sheila Kim Parker, co-founder and CEO of Thrilling, and Amanda Parks, Chief Innovation Officer for Pangaea. Enjoy. Well, thank you everyone for joining us today, and thank you to our panel for being here. I'm so excited for this conversation. Um, you know, the premise of this panel is that conspicuous consumption is out, and you know, consumers are have decided to embrace sustainability. Um, and I thought by maybe we should start by figuring out whether that's actually true. <laughs> um, you know, we just finished New York Fashion Week. Um, there was plenty of conspicuous consumption there. Uh, I was just reading in the Wall Street Journal that uh, Xi'an, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, is about to open three giant U.S. warehouses. Um, it certainly makes you question the premise a little bit. Um, and so, yeah, I'm curious from your points of view, you know, is conspicuous consumption uh, over uh, in the fashion world? I don't know who wants to start. <laughs> I can I can jump in. Yeah. <clears throat> so I don't know. <laughs> I think it's just the simple answer. Um, the harder answer, and I'll, I jumped in just because we're an organization that deals in data. Um, it's very hard to get figures about just how much uh, clothing is produced every year. There's no requirement coming from any government that um, makes that disclosure mandatory. Uh, so we don't know. So we can only take cues from what we're seeing with happening with different companies, which is why we have this focus on Shein and just seeing the enormous volumes um, and quantities of new products that they're introducing, um, it's hard to believe while there's this like rise in more sustainably minded people that that's not being just outweighed by, um, you know, a complete move towards even more disposable fashion. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think we have a long way to go. I feel like Shein is a perfect manifestation of why. Um, I, I, Latest estimates are two and a half billion items sold last year by Shein at an average price point of $7. Wow. Um, and I think we all know what the average price point of $7 at those volumes, what that implies. <laughs> and to put that in scale, um, more app downloads of Shein than Amazon in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, highest private company valuation, more than SpaceX. Uh, the only beat by SpaceX and ByteDance, TikTok's parent company. And so we can go to the moon or we can buy a Right, there you go. <laughs> Gap produces maybe 12,000 new styles every year, H&M and Zara in the 25,000, 35,000 range. And Shein in that same time period, it's in the 1.3 million range. Wow. That's 6,000 new styles they're churning out every single day on their website. And so I think, you know, our actions betray us because study after study shows that consumers do care about sustainability and that they do want to incorporate sustainability into their purchasing decisions. And yet, obviously, ghosts are not buying fast fashion. We are. And so I think this is where policy, I think, is an important lever because humans are so... We're, we're not great at self-regulating, especially when you have something that's going to provide a quick dopamine hit um, and is cheap and easily accessible. And brands, especially fast fashion, are it's, it's very hard to divorce themselves from that growth imperative. So I, I agree with you guys, but I also want to take a little bit of a devil's advocate thing. Yeah. And 
maybe look um, at Gen Z behavior because there's some encouraging things there, like go get off the corporate stuff because that that is quite terrifying. Um, but you know, if you look at sort of 13-year-olds, vintage is becoming really exciting again. There's this, there's a whole kind of different surge in acknowledgement. I know that my niece, I I own a fashion brand, and I had to force, I, I forced her to take some stuff for me. You know that kind of thing. She doesn't want anything new. So I think there is. Um, a bit of a behavioral change growing. And I think what's also exciting about how we can use digital technologies and other, and also material technologies is to say fashion can be experiential um, and, and kind of a form of expression without it just being about consumption. And as so more and more of those models, mm -hmm. and then there can be, you know, things about sharing and rental and we believe in all that. And then at the, you know, also working on, okay, if you are gonna make garments, have them be of materials that are appropriate. So the reason that this mass consumption thing is such a huge problem is because 60% of all garments contain polyester, fossil fuels, right? Mm. If we start to shift the models towards things that naturally biodegrade and we don't, we don't have to worry about it so much. We don't need to be having mass, mass consumption, but this idea of a kind of do no harm with the materials themselves, if they work as part of the bio cycle, then we're in a different position to think about consumption. Yeah, well, I feel like that's a great segue to kind of better understand what you're doing at Pangaea. Um, a lot of it does have to do with the materials. So maybe tell us a little bit about, I think there's seaweed involved and wildflowers. <laughs> yeah. It sounds very exciting. Yeah, so I, I'm the chief innovation officer of Pangaea. And um, we, um, I call, we're a material science brand company that manifests as a fashion brand. So what you see, the tip of the iceberg is that we're selling clothes, but we really are a material research institute. And uh, where I direct the science towards very specific R&D goals around this returning to the bioeconomy. So we're looking a lot at biodiversity. Um, and so how do we, you know, there's nothing, there's no particular problem with cotton in itself as a plant, but we've over, over industrialized it, monocropped it. So how do we spread? There's so many amazing plants and fibers in the world. Let's start to create more resiliency in our supply chain of materials. We haven't even explored them. So we're looking at, yes, seaweed is a big one. Himalayan nettle, um, you know, all different forms of agricultural waste, banana, pineapple, and then doing these really interesting blends of how do we make them feel like a cotton jersey? So looking at all new supply chains in that space and then looking at alternatives in leather, uh, again, plant-based. Um, I guess that we, we look to work with a philosophy which we call high-tech naturalism, mm. where we take something that's an abundance in nature and then infuse it and uh, augment it with uh, the highest forms of science and tech. So our flower down, which is our first patented uh, product, is made with uh, basically waste wildflowers, a very particular kind of pod, like fluff, and then mixed with uh, cellulosic aerogel and biopolymer, which gives it the same thermal properties and, and stability as down, as animal down. So, so, so ideas like that, how do we use science and tech with waste? And what your, your pants are... Okay. Yeah, the, yeah, these are our bio-based um, activewear, yes, and our my top, yes, yeah. <laughs> How long does it take a product to go from initial conception to in the market? Uh, well, if you're talking about the materials themselves, that's a different thing. Um, some of the that we're working more in a biotech cycle. If you look at things that we do around biofabrication, say we've had, um, you know, use uh, uh, biofabrication, splicing DNA from a color in nature, putting it into a microbe and growing that into a kind of color dye. That's been in you know, research for 15 years as a wow. kind of idea, but I think things are speeding up a little bit. We are talking about biotech kinds of cycles, so standard kind of company, new idea to, to anything kind of out there would be about seven years. But we're, we're, we're accelerating that in various ways and trying to kind of get newer stage earlier, earlier and earlier um, into our product, which is you know, fashion and 
science are not so good at meeting in the middle. So we're trying to create that bridge. Mm. And Sheila, you've built a platform that helps small business owners you know, focused on vintage reach new audiences. Tell us more about how that platform works and, and how you got it started. Uh, well, I grew up in New York City. And like every good New Yorker, um, shopping for me meant thrift shopping and vintage shopping. And um, for me, it was, you know, not necessarily having the resources um, um, to buy the latest and greatest. And so it was a value hunt. But also, I loved finding these really unique treasures that I'd never seen before. Um, our company is called Thrilling because it's the thrill of the hunt. I find it joyful and want to share that joy with the rest of the world. Mm. Um, and one of the aha moments for starting the business is... Um, becoming a working mom and, and no longer really having disposable time. So I used to love spending weekends and afternoons diving through racks and just didn't have that time anymore. And when I wanted to shop, which is post kids bedtime when I'm falling asleep on the couch um, from my phone, I realized most of my favorite shops are not online. And that was kind of, huh, it's, that's interesting. Mm. And then um, the other part of my journey and kind of aha moment was, you know, I come from small business owners my grandparents started the first black-owned business in their tiny town in North Carolina. It was a dry cleaners because no other dry cleaners in town would serve black people yeah. um, at the time. And um, I grew up among a lot of small business owners, especially in and around apparel. Mm. Um, and when I talked to my friends and, and family members who sold secondhand or vintage, they spoke with great passion about feeling underserved by tech. Mm. And that even though e-commerce is such a mainstream concept at this point, most platforms are geared for you and I to sell a few items from our closets and not geared for small business owners who have tens of thousands of curated secondhand. Unique inventory is a totally different tech and e-commerce challenge. And so that was the other part of it. And then, of course, like all of us, activated and aggravated by the climate crisis and um, apparel industry's contribution and how can we mitigate it. Um, and so um, started out with my co-founder, our CTO, with a simple product, went door to door. Um, 2018, um, and uh, now we support 2,000 shops um, across the country in over 300 cities. Wow, that's great. Um, I'm curious, like when people are, are like, there are the folks shopping for vintage, like Amanda was saying, you know, teenagers, or yeah, what's your audience like? It's absolutely um, Gen Z is definitely leading the way. I think my parents are still not over the idea of buying secondhand. I think for them, it's like really, <laughs> um, and so there's definitely. Uh, a mindset shift that I think is um, powered by younger generations. But honestly, we're seeing at every age demographic um, um, folks really embracing it because I think, you know, um, people are realizing more and more you're not sacrificing anything by shopping secondhand. Um, there's, there's really no difference, you know, um, between firsthand and secondhand and, and they can, it can be just as delightful. Um, and, um, and now they're more platforms and innovations than ever that help make it easier to access that market. And Maxine, you've been kind of raising awareness of fashion's impact on the planet by trying to sort of build this coalition and push for kind of broader regulatory change. Tell us about how, what, that, what the Fashion Act is and, um, and you know, where you're kind of trying to head with that. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting being on uh, this stage because my uh, career is, um, you know, has, has twisted and turned and... Um, Fast Company has been very kindly along, along the road uh, with me. Um, but it started off with a fashion tech company. Mm. Um, and it was, uh, the company was Zadie. Um, and we were looking at trying to tell the story of where clothing came from. And that was really the journey for me into um, issues around the impacts of the industry. 
And as we were just trying to do storytelling, this was now over 10 years ago. Yeah, I remember it. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, you know, we were coming across this data of what was happening in the space, and it was limited data, but I was just, you know, I was really shocked. Like, how does nobody know about this whole world? Um, and so what ended up, you know, happening on that journey was, you know, a realization and a kind of come to God moment, which was, you know, we could we could continue to try to reduce our own impact within our own um, clothing company. But if the rest of the industry wasn't moving at our same pace, the net result for the industry was that we were just going to have increased impact. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the then transition into looking at other models um, and, and developing the new Standard Institute, which is the, the nonprofit that I now run. And that then turned to, okay, we need innovations. You know, we need, you know, we need the companies presented on, um, on the panel. But underneath that, just like we have in every other serious emitting industry and serious um, labor impacting um, industry, we need to have standards and regulation. We're not going to get there. These companies are not going to be accelerated fast enough without the government stepping in. Um, and we've seen that voluntary efforts while much touted, hasn't moved the actual bottom line what we see in the data. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's really, um, you know, been then the focus with the Fashion Act, which is setting that standard for an industry. So it's a New York bill, but has global implications in the same way that the California fuel efficiency standards was a, a, a California state um, law that had really revolutionized how the car industry um, operates. And so uh, what it does is it requires any company um, with global sales over $100 million that wishes to sell to the New York market to operate in a certain way. Um, and that, that means, including for issues like climate, that these companies have to reduce their emissions, not just in their headquarters, which is a very de minimis, small, tiny amount compared to what's happening in their supply chain, but actually within their supply chain, reduce their emissions to be in line with the Paris Agreement. Um, and the same for um, the equivalence for um, chemical management um, and for labor as well. Um, and so that's why we can then kind of, we can, you know, all work together. Leading companies can use that to their competitive advantage because they're doing the right thing. Um, businesses that are lagging behind can look to these companies, help support them so that they shift towards these sorts of models. Um, and we actually achieve the progress that we need to achieve in the timeframe that we need to mm. achieve it. And where are the biggest sort of opportunities to increase efficiency or reduce waste or reduce those emissions? Like, you know, is there a certain part of the cycle that you feel like there's the biggest sort of opportunity? Yeah. So if we just zero in on carbon, I tried to like really zero in on what categories we're talking about because sustainability can mean anything. Um, uh, so if we're talking about carbon, so the fashion industry, again, it's hard to get peer-reviewed data, but mm. represents anywhere between 4 and 8.6. Another study says 10. I tend not <laughs> to listen to that one. It's not the best. Um, but it's a, a very significant carbon footprint. That's more than France, Germany, the UK combined. Um, and it's growing and expected, if things don't change, to take a quarter of the global carbon budget by 2050 if we kind of continue on this track. And that was even before Shein, so maybe it's accelerated. <laughs> um, and so if we're just zeroing in on carbon, 
the real hot spot for carbon emissions is at textile mills. It's not actually the fiber that we're using. That's like 15%, depends on what company. But about 76% of the carbon emissions, it's not on shipping. Um, it's on the textile mills. And there are already technologies available um, um, that just make uh, more energy efficiency in the textile mills, moving to green technologies. But these things aren't being financed because companies are getting to de define what sustainability is for themselves. And they're therefore not doing that critical work with their suppliers to make these necessary upgrades. Yeah, yeah. And do you feel like what will, do you think the act would compel people, I guess, to make those investments? Correct. Yeah, yeah and it would both, and I think an, an, um, a challenging dynamic in this space and why voluntary measures in this space in particular are not working is that um, it is a very open secret that uh, brands share suppliers. Mm -hmm. um, and so what is happening now is a company, even a company that wants to do the right thing and is voluntarily setting a science-based target, mm -hmm. if they're the only ones spending money on a shared supplier, they end up not doing it. And so you have a lot of companies that have set science-based targets, but when you start looking at the data, they're not achieving it. Mm -hmm. um, and so it really provides, because of this dynamic, combined with like our short-term... <laughs> Um, you know, company's short-term profit um, goals, we're not, there isn't, there isn't a requirement amongst all of them. And so you, companies are at a competitive disadvantage for doing the right thing. But if you set the floor, then all of the companies like, okay, we have to figure this out. We all have to fund this. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I'm curious if for all of you, it does feel like, yeah, these sort of voluntary ways in which people have been participating in sustainability. Um, like, I'm curious whether we're kind of at a moment where there is going to be a reckoning or more accountability. We just had, you know, H&M getting into trouble. Um, they're both with regulators. And I think they're also like individuals are suing them for their conscious collection label, which I'm sure we've all seen if we've shopped on H&M's website. Um, it certainly does make you feel good to, to buy those items um, as opposed to, to buying what feels like fast fashion, perhaps. Um, but it seems that the, that is an illusion. Um, and, you know, do you think that these sort of attempts at cracking down or holding people accountable, like, will that move the needle? Or, you know, are you hopeful, I guess, about sort of where some of that is headed? Um, yeah, I'll grab, jump into this as a brand kind of dealing yeah. with it. And we, you know... I think the first thing to recognize, like, I'm totally pro-legislation and, and regulation. It's just there's a lot of nuances that I want to make sure get addressed around innovation and, 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 and data. I mean, just the idea of, first of all, data collection. We have a whole impact team in our company. We've been committed to that since the very beginning, as well as R&D. And the amount of time, energy, money, resources we put into, like, for example, releasing our impact report is massive, you know, it, compared to, like, the actual size of our brand. And... Um, and collecting that data was really, really hard, and there's still a lot of it in there, that secondary data, meaning we couldn't get the first-order data. So I think all of that um, is, there's there's a lot of, of kind of gray areas which we need to dig into, and I, I call it just like scientific logic. I think part of the problem with what H&M was doing was it was a data skew play, and, and anybody in science knows you can make the data look at however you want it with clever, with, with clever interpretation. So that part of it, I think, needs to, needs to kind of be, be super focused on. And then I think there's another area where um, it's what I call kind of the innovation aggregate or aggregation over time. So for example, as we're developing new fibers, they might like as they get measured, they might have a higher carbon toll than some kind of monocropped cotton, just because of how the how the data is set up in the supply chain. But the kind this this is where this whole idea of 
um, you know, scientific logic. Like we know this is better in the long run. And so you, mm -hmm. you spend a little bit more carbon or a little bit more money or whatever it is in a long term. So I use kind of the example of solar panels in the, in the 80s or 90s, right? At the time, getting them up and running was the manufacturing was, if you did just a straight up like carbon analysis of that versus fossil fuels at the time, you would have never invested in, in, in solar panels. But now they've come down in terms of um, cost, um, you, know, you know, basically environmental impact, all of that. And so, so you need to have, you need to kind of recognize where the fundamental shifts can be in the right direction and have some mechanism for that. Um, and then the other thing is like with a lot of regulations and standards, they're about paying a certain amount of money to be certified. So you oftentimes kind of exclude smaller brands or smaller farms and just because of the, the actual cost. And so you have big companies being able to get certified more easily. So, so I think that we just, we just want to be able to kind of have just logic <laughs> and common sense inside of it. And I think that that's where we really need to look. Um, you know, if we have a, a law that's only a U.S. law, like, and you're obviously, you're manufacturing overseas, how do we control? Mm. And, and, and a lot of times this, all these burdens, I really appreciate what you said about, you know, shared suppliers and the burden falling on that, you know, usually the manufacturer has the smallest, slimmest profit margin in the whole supply chain and the mm. burden of getting a new machine falls on them. We need to fix that. So however that works, it has to be international in nature. And yeah, and, the, and that's how if we, we kind of, can we actually get people to, to share the burden? Like as a brand's working together, I, you know, I, uh, we, part of our business is we have B2B. So we also, we develop these mm -hmm. textiles and then we sell them to other brands. And I think one of the ways that we hope that this could move things forward is we've already done all the back-end work on impact. Yeah. You know, yeah. We have everything done on the LCA. So you can spend, it maybe, it maybe it will cost an extra five cents or something. But if there's a regulation that makes you have to do this, right, mm -hmm. this is going to be a more affordable way for a brand to do it than to start their own LCA. So that's kind of one of the mechanisms we're working towards as well. And it's better for our bottom line. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So we're, we're support. We're supportive of the regulation as, as long as it's maneuvered in the right way with logic. There's a lot of complexity <laughs> there. Yeah. This episode of Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. Yeah, I, I, you're um, a, a, a leader... Um, in this because most legacy brands are not making those investments um, in terms of data collection. I think accountability, which is the core of your question, is only as good as the data you have access to. Mm. And even Patagonia, who is a leading light across probably every metric you can yeah. be as a company Absolutely. in this space, yeah. um, you know, scored 60% um, on this index called the Fashion Transparency Index, mm. um, which is this index that measures 250 of the world's largest brands on how transparent they are on their social and environmental policies, as well as their retail and supply chain operations. And the folks behind the index were motivated to create it um, because of the 2013 tragedy in Bangladesh, where the Rana Plaza garment factory collapsed and killed 1,100 folks. And rescuers had to dig through the rubble to find the labels on the garments to know which companies to alert that their employees had just died because that data had not been collected or communicated properly. Mm -hmm. And so um, I completely agree that it's about, um, first, I think, investing in the data inf infrastructure to collect data across supply chains and how garments are actually produced, and then policy to enforce transparency around that so that consumers are better informed about whether the garments they're buying are truly sustainable or not. Yeah. I just yeah, of course. That, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I think so. I, I think in this era, 
we're going to have to learn to, you know, walk and chew gum at the same time. And I think we can, in the, you know, in the same with the solar panel industry um, regulation and the advancements in, you know, where it was going directionally with carbon, where it was going with pricing happens at the same time. Yeah. And, and one can help the other. So um, I entirely agree with you. We are we are at a, we're at a challenging but not impossible time. We are in a challenging time because, um, you know, as you were mentioning, the the data collection we're having we're in the infancy of data collection in this uh, not just the fashion industry across industries, but it hits particularly with the fashion industry as well. Um, and so we have to, um, you know, create very thoughtful laws because <laughs> yeah. regulation it's not just regulation done. Like, you have to be, we have to be very thoughtful that we create thoughtful laws that allow enough flexibility that as methodologies improve, that that law isn't written in stone, that the methodology isn't written in stone, so that that can um, encapsulate, even though the law is written at one time, the regulations around it can evolve. Um, and this is, like, quite in the weeds, but it's very important, I think, to to have smart regulation on this. And smart regulation can actually help get the data um, that we need and incentivize that data collection. Um, because like right now, we have different companies each doing their own LCAs sometimes on the same facility. Well, if one facility just uploads their data, then they don't have to, because they often are the ones that have to end up paying for this, they don't have to do the data collection 10 different times for the 10 different brands that are um, using their facility. We need regulation. It's not going to happen on its own, but it has to be smart regulation um, that can um, evolve as the methodologies evolve. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It feels like sort of the backdrop to a lot of this conversation is this question of cost and, and cost for the consumer. And, um, you know, it's one thing to see, you know, uh, high-end fashion designers send beautiful gowns down the runway that have been made with dead stock. And, you know, we can all sort of celebrate that and that statement. Um, and then, you know, the next day you go to Old Navy and you're not, you don't really have the same expectation. And they're obviously just sort of operating in a really different way. Um, and so I guess I'm curious, like, you know, particularly if there is sort of regulation coming, you know, can we expect that this these ideas are going to work for a mass market or in a mass audience? Um, you know, how do the economics work, I guess? Yeah, I'll jump in there because, you know, we're a brand, cost-sensitive, cost yeah. of course. And our, our kind of attitude towards price is, first of all, we started from a completely different mindset as a fashion brand. Like, we kind of operate a little bit more like a tech company. Mm -hmm. um, and, the we you know, first of all, the idea of fast fashion and things costing $7, that just has to go away. Because somebody is paying for that, 100%. their life, the earth. Some, someone's Absolutely. paying. That's not the, that's not the price. Yeah. So you set a baseline <laughs> price of, like, this is a reasonable for materials and labor, et cetera. And then you kind of go from there. And so we're talking in the high street. And, you know, what we're doing with materials is um, we're putting, we're kind of shifting our business model somewhat where we have, we put more upfront costs into research, like a, like a tech firm, um, and, and more costs into our literal bill of materials on something. And what, what, what's sort of always hidden inside fashion brands are these massive kind of marketing and advertising budget, you know, the celebrity, the $10 million celebrity contract 
can, can fund my, like, 10 projects in my lab for three years, right? So yeah. these ki- so we don't pay any celebrity. Like, just start there. Um, and, then, <laughs> and then you have a whole lab research budget. And, and so kind of just sh- these shifting models. So we do, we have a, a, a relationship with our, with our um, production partners. We have a joint venture in Portugal. So we know we, we can actually control and manufacture smartly. So there's lots of these small, smart ways. Now, that you can you can start to twist the the cost, and that's part of our experiment as a company. The is like shifting the business model. This is much easier to do when you start a new brand, mm-hmm. I, which I under, recognize because you know shifting all that stuff inside of an existing like long term um, luxury brand is is much harder. But I do think that we're trying to become as much of a model for the fashion industry from our materials as well as business model to show because this is what was always happening. I was working with a lot of startups in the space. And you know, the, you would they would get up to a certain point, and they could make a material, but it would cost ten cents more. Ten cents more would be good. It might cost a dollar more at the beginning, right? Like like yeah. you would with any innovation. And the fashion brands would say, absolutely not. Like they'd say, oh, we want sustainability, like top down. And then the person who actually makes a decision about how much a textile costs yeah. could not make that decision to say we're going to spend ten cents more. So this idea of kind of trying to meet in the middle. The cost can come down with almost all the things we're working on. We're not make work on anything that doesn't have a, a, a you know a, a sustainable future at a high volume manufactured level. Yeah. Um, again, not fast fashion prices. We're not trying to get down to like monocropped cotton, but we if, like if you if you, in an accountability of like this is a reasonable cost. And and with also quite frankly the other problem that consume what we have with consumers is that. It's not directly, it's not always directly related the kind of quality of a garment and its materials to the cost of it. There's lots of terrible products inside luxury because of labels. And so yeah. there's an arbitrary mock, uh, markup on certain things. And so that's not transparent either to the consumer. So, so in a way, no. is it the, you can't really blame the consumer for being confused. Yeah, perhaps. yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah. I, I, you know, I live in the secondhand and resale world. And so from that point of view, I believe that there is sustainable clothing available to mass market audiences in, in the secondhand marketplace. I mean, last year we bought a billion items of secondhand clothing, which is a massive number. But um, there are estimates that are somewhere in the 80 to 100 billion items that were produced. New clothing was produced last year. So what we're shopping secondhand is a drop in the bucket to what's actually being produced and what's a- available to shop secondhand. Um, and I think it's really about um, going to be, and, and pricing is often used as an argument for why not to engage in the secondhand marketplaces. And yet, the biggest platforms out there, Poshmark, Depop, ThreadUp, their average prices are in the $10, maybe $20 range, so accessibly priced. And so from my point of view, it's a lot about kind of retraining of consumer muscles. And I think we're going to have to do this across most consumer categories, not just apparel. Yeah. Um, and, you know, honestly, for many cases, and I run a resale platform, and I'm, I'm saying this from as a, as a person who runs a resale platform, the most sustainable option is probably already in your closet or in your home. Yeah. Um, and it's about, can I repair that thing in my home or in my closet to fit my needs today? Mm. If not, um, the second best option is, can I find um, a, uh, something that's sustainably produced um, or is available in a secondhand marketplace? Um, and I think it's going to be that retraining of consumer behavior that's going to be necessary in the months and years ahead. Yeah. I would just build off of, sorry, what you were saying, Sheila, is that, um, first of all, you know, when you look at the data of if you, you know, what it would cost H&M to... Um, give a garment worker a living wage, which is a, what we're very far off from. You know, something in the research was like 10 cents for per T-shirt. And that was 
if that cost is borne by the consumer and not by the company itself, which is producing a lot of billionaires. So I think there's, you know, that, that element. Um, and then I, I also just kind of want to note, you know, I think it's, it's been unfortunate that sustainability has kind of been used as this marketing tool, as a, um, um, especially in the luxury sector, to um, kind of give reason for a higher-end price point, which has done a disservice to what sustainability, sustainability yeah. actually is, mm-hmm. which would have to cover all market categories. Um, so then I think the, another just point to add to that is um, the, the data on how often we're wearing our clothing across, across socioeconomic status is going down. So we're wearing our clothes. We have more clothing than ever before. We're wearing it fewer times. So, and this isn't because like people want that. If you, when you, like, if you spend time thinking about it, or I've had the opportunity to speak to a lot of uh, people buying clothes and they have a very unhappy relationship with their wardrobes because they're always being pushed new styles and have never been able to actually spend time thinking about what is their own style. And so I think it's a little bit of, um, you know, fast fashion companies doing a bit of a disservice to the ultimate end goal to like continue to market this disposability and then turn around and say, well, we're just making fashion accessible. Like that is not mm. fair combined with the fact that it's these companies that have also been pushing this race to the bottom um, and getting wages to go down more so that people have less disposable income. So I think we have to think about all of these factors together to, to really think about like where we're going in the future. It does seem like there's kind of growing awareness of just the extent to which fashion companies are kind of controlling the narrative. I think of uh, the conversation right now around uh, vegan leather and people sort of maybe taking a step back and like rethinking um, <laughs> the vegan leather. leather means plastic. plastic. Yeah, like, <laughs> that makes me crazy. There's like, yeah, we, we always use plant-based in our like, yeah. Is there any plant in that leather? That you have it to- sounds so compelling, doesn't it? You know, I mean, who wouldn't want to buy a vegan leather <laughs> skirt or handbag? Um, you know, I, I would, you know, sounds nice to me. Like, click, <laughs> buy. Um, but, um, but it does seem, I'm curious, like, yeah, do you think, what will it take to sort of educate consumers a little bit better about this stuff? Like, you know, can we educate ourselves? Like, do we just need the fashion companies to get more honest about some of these narratives? I mean, we, this is just coming from my perspective as a scientist founding a fashion brand is like, we have extensive information available. We have a whole section on our website called science, you know, and explain all the materials. And we try to be out. I mean, even literally our brand had like, you know, our trademarking is, this is what this is made of and how it's made, right? That's, it's just a text block um, without even our, our name there, just mm-hmm. to say, look, we literally are wearing what, you know, our, our information on our sleeves. And um, yeah, I think that the more things get pointed out, it indirectly points out who's not sharing and then people start to ask mm-hmm. questions. So I like the empowerment piece of it where you're not trying to like bash people on the head with information, but if you're feeding them facts and you're saying, oh, this is our new like 100% plant-based leather, then people go, well, what's, how's that different to this other vegan leather? I'm like, oh, well, that's 100% polyurethane. So, you know, th- those kinds of things are, are kind of where we need to kind of not be sneaky, but, we, you know, I don't want to, I'm a yeah, former professor, so I'm all about educating, educating, but you got you to sneak it in there. It's like get the veggies in with the, 
with the with the cookies or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard, yeah. yeah. And I should also note, we, we're happy to take some audience questions. So um, we can get a couple of uh, mic runners going um, for this last uh, part of the conversation too. So feel free to raise your hand and, and we can do some questions. Um, Maybe um, I, uh, while folks are thinking about what they'd like to ask, um, you know, one thing that's been sort of interesting, I think, Sheila, you brought up was just this idea that, you know, can companies kind of chase growth um, in ways that doesn't involve, you know, selling more clothes? Um, I think you had some interesting examples. I'm curious if you wanted to chat about that a bit. Yeah, um, I think uh, Patagonia obviously is the, is the obvious <laughs> one that most recently comes to, not, comes to mind. Um, but I, 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 I'm actually going to talk about Selfridges um, because I think their announcement is really interesting. Um, Selfridges is a UK department store chain, and they announced that by 2030, they um, commit to having 50% of their consumer transactions being resale, repair, rental, or refills, I assume, for their beauty products. Hmm. And the reason why I think that announcement is really interesting and exciting is that, first of all, it's a time horizon that's close. It's not 30, 50 years down the line we'll get this done. It's saying, hey, we realize you're going to remember in eight years what we said today and hold us accountable to that. And I, and I said, so I love that. And the other piece of it is that it's a grappling with a, my business model has got to change, can't be business as usual, and how do we think about a revolution of our core business model. And I think it's that kind of existential grappling with the core business model um, that's going to be necessary in the months and years ahead across a lot of companies. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just want to quickly bring up that's yeah. totally on this track. For the, by the way, Selfridges is the only department store we sell in, and they're doing an amazing <laughs> job. And we, we have carbon neutral windows and the space and everything. So a totally wave head. But the, um, I, so there's this new economic philosophy called Donut Economics, British, uh, British woman Kate Raworth, that to me finally, because I took economics in college and was like, I, while taking engineering, and I was like, this doesn't make any sense. It defies the laws of physics. I must be really bad at it. But no, it just doesn't make sense. But this idea of donut economics is that you live inside the donut. So there's a base where you protect people in the environment, and then there's an outlier where you can't go above. So as long as you stay within the donut, I'm very, over, overly simplifying it, you can still have growth within there. So this idea, we, you know, as humans, we want to make things and produce, and this idea of innovation is kind of inherently human. And so how do we kind of live with that and stay within the planetary boundaries? So I think that just from that raw piece, that's just how we can rec like reconcile, okay, we are still going to make product and move forward and make our lives better and more fun, but we just have to obey these, these different planetary boundaries. Yeah, yeah I, I would just add to that because I'm a big fan of Kate Rotworth um, and Donut Economics. Is that, And I'm so happy this has evolved from the fashion space to the future of business space. Yeah. Um, because I think we like that is definitely the ideal state, and I think it's such a good framework. But that is not where corporate America is. No. That is not where the investment community is. That is not where, despite big claims to the contrary, where the banking industry is. Um, and so... And I think this also ties into, like, is it the consumer that's going to push it? Like, people are consumers and they are citizens, um, and we need government to step in and make some of these ideas more mandatory rather than, like, just in this, like, ether of ideas that wouldn't that be great? Because I think we've, you know, now seen, um, you know, corporate America say that, like, they really care about these ideas, but then when push comes to shove they're still continuing on short-term profit maximization. Um, and that's where 
you know, we ultimately really need to figure out. And it's not easy, just like the data piece. It's not easy to figure out, like, how are we going to shift our global economy in this way? And how are people going to still have jobs and have the things that they need? But that's the question. Like, that's the stuff we really need to be talking about. Um, and we, you know, we can't, we can be like bright eyed, but shouldn't be Pollyannish as we sort of yeah. walk through those things. Yeah. I think there was a question down here. Hi, my name is uh, Clayton Durant. Um, I've worked on like the education side of fashion for quite some time uh, in the past, and I'm kind of curious from your guys' perspective, what role does you know the education world have to play in you know making fashion a little bit more sustainable? You know, I'm talking about like the RISDs of the world and the FITs. Like, do they need to you know integrate more sustainability initiatives within their own curriculum? That's a great question. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can jump in since I am still semi in education. I've um, been a professor on and off for a long time. But first of all, like, I think, yeah, education, educating around process technologies, right? And thinking, thinking through how to, like, zero waste, all, the, all that kind of stuff integrated. Um, education about materials and their sustainable impact. Education on kind of life cycle. And it doesn't mean that the fashion students need to become scientists. It's more just that they, if they have a baseline of kind of the understanding of where the industry is. Um, like we, we do some seminars between MIT and FIT kind of to, to kind of share this knowledge. So it's, it's about kind of understanding each other's space. And then I also think that as brands, uh, this, it also the, the transition of like the first job out of college thing, I think that's a really hard place too, where you can try to get kind of bigger companies to allow, as the students learn, the students should be bringing these ideas into the companies. That's a natural process. That's how tech works, right? Like you, <laughs> um, and so if they can start to have this kind of more exper experimental space between industry and what the student, wh where the students are pushing, that's also really important too, to kind of understand the practicality. Because, you know, they'll learn all this, oh, wouldn't it be great if we used our waste for X? But there needs to be a pilot inside of some brand where they can test that out. So any time we can, I think, push the interchange between industry and education also is really important for this. There was a question over here. Um, yeah, thanks. Brilliant conversation. Um, I think we need to just take a little bit of altitude. We're talking about systems design, I mean, fundamentally. And certainly, you know, regulation and governance is an aspect of that. But another aspect is incentives and, and incentive alignment across those systems. So I'm just curious if, if you've prototyped, experimented with systems, with, with incentives, excuse me, either on an individual level or on a community level or in a market um, institutional level, if there's any kind of incentive design that you've been playing with that uh, the market could adopt or pull forward. Yeah, so I guess the question is around sort of like, what are the right carrots instead of sticks if we're talking about pushing this change? Has anyone done those experiments? Yeah. But I would just say that regulation can be carrots and sticks yeah. together. Um, and it doesn't, you know, the, I think we have to set a floor um, on how the production has to happen, which is creating its own incentives within the industry itself. So it is creating a lot of um, internal carrots. Um, but then you can also have, you know, which I think the Inflation Reduction Act is full of um, carrots um, and, and, and hoping that that kind of makes a shift. So these things, you know, regulation can... Um, can and should evolve to be to be both of those things. Yeah, and especially around things like materials, because this is where the smart legislation comes in. There's certain categories of materials that when they're more sustainable, but because they haven't been properly written about, 
they actually tax higher because they fall in some other category. Mm. So just readjusting categorizations could help a million, like so mm. much. But yeah, we have, probably have time for one more. Um, I think there was one, yeah, down front here. Um, Hi, I'm Samuel. Uh, thank you again for sharing your philosophies with us. Uh, my question is, given that AI is the future of you know technology right now, uh, can we also expect uh, living materials to play a role in the development of the future of fashion? Ooh. I'm sorry, living materials that you said? Living materials. So things like spore-based bacteria or get, give me, uh, what does the living materials have to do with AI in this context? Well, given that it's the future you know, of technology and you know, being expressive, how can we use AI and also living materials in the okay. future of fashion? But I think that my, when I, I think about biofabrication is the like the, how we grow, actually growing materials and we can have a lot of actually data doing very smart control over process of growth. AI to me has maybe a slightly different um, manifestation, which is much more about the importance of data and data collection and how we interpret the data. So I kind of, um, I kind of see those as two separate things, but absolutely biofabrication and this idea that we have uh, control of our materials through data, algor through algorithmic data and interpretation, that's hugely important for smart production. Well, thank you very much to everyone for coming. Thank you to our panelists. <laughs> um, thank you.